race is on. And finally, we're on the brink of the serious stuff starting with the Formula 1 season opening Bahrain Grand Prix this weekend. And based on pre-season testing, dare we hope for a genuine title fight between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. I'm Ed Straw, and to answer that question and many more, I'm joined by Scott Mitchell, Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well, we've got a huge amount to, to get through on this podcast, so I think we have to pile straight into it, otherwise we'll be going on for hours. So, really exciting prospect, Mark. Pre-season testing suggests that Verstappen might, for the first time, have a car capable of fighting for the World Championship. So, if that is the case, he's going to have to beat Lewis Hamilton in order to win it. So, how do you see that battle shaking out if they are in relatively comparable cars? It's going to be fascinating if, if, as you say, the cars are about the same um, because it's it's the big contest Formula One's been waiting for for a few years now, you know, a straight, just a straight driver's fight between those two. And we've we've had little hints of it over the years when, when you know, when they've crossed swords a little bit, but generally, you know, the Mercedes has been superior to the Red Bull. And on the days when the Red Bull's been superior to the Mercedes, it's been a lot superior, you know, in places like Mexico. So in those few races, Verstappen's tended to disappear off in the distance. So, yeah, relatively few times that they they have crossed swords. But when they have, it's been fascinating. And I think the the first one I remember was Malaysia 17. And Lewis was driving very much for the title. He'd set pole, but he needed his Q3 engine advantage to do it. The Red Bull was quicker and, and, and raced for him. And Max just shattered him for the first three laps. You could tell he was bobbing about. He was being very, very aggressive. And he just sent one down the inside of Lewis and sort of dared him to, to block him. And Lewis had to fight his instincts because he was trying to seal the world championship. And he just let him go. And then in the, the very next race, there were uh, at Suzuka, they were close again. And this time Lewis was in, in the defensive role <clears throat> and just he kept him behind to the end. And in China 18, when uh, Verstappen was on the new tyres because of a safety car and Lewis was on the old tyres, it was obvious Verstappen was going to uh, catch and pass. He had so much more grip. But Lewis sort of left a tempting little uh, little space on the outside of the fast turn eight, which he didn't need to try and pass there, but he did. And then, you know, Lewis just bundled him over the curb and that was that. So that actually ended up winning Danny Ricciardo the race. But it was just indicative of, of the, the the mentality between the two. And, and I think Lewis, is, he, he said in the past, he's, he is quite wary about getting wheel-to-wheel with Max because he doesn't know what he's going to do next. So he, he has got into his head. Um, on the other hand, you know, you can say, well, you can't um, attack like that if you're fighting for the World Championship. But... I don't know. Maybe you can. Um, some, it just depends on the situation, doesn't it? But it's a it's a fascinating dynamic. Um, if indeed the, the two cars are near near enough equal to make it um, to make it fair, it's the thing that's really great to see because we know Hamilton kind of has the edge over, say, a Sebastian Vettel in terms of title fights, and Hamilton knows that. But Verstappen, he's that unknown, isn't he? How do you see it, Gary? And obviously, you're a you're a technical guy. You're a, a car maker, but in terms of the way you see drivers, do these matchups excite you when you see them come wheel to wheel on track? Um, yeah, it does. I mean, obviously, you're, that, the end result is the driver in the car. You can only, as a technical guy, you can only give them a car that you hope will perform. But it's up to the driver then to do to to bring that performance to the racetrack. 
And, you know, we've not seen Max and Lewis, let's say, and we're singling out these two, you know, but let's say that's what the, the real competition should be. Um, but we've not seen Max and Lewis consistently enough having battle for either of the two of them to get to know each other. You know, normally through time, you do get to, to know that your other drivers around you. You know how to give a little, who to give a little bit more space to or who you can use your muscle and they'll back out of it, you know. But I don't think those two have actually raced enough yet to, to get that, that understanding of each other's aggressive level. Um, so that's really what I would be interested to see. I mean, the last thing you want to do is be so aggressive that you end up with front wings lying all over the place because, you know, that does nobody any good. Uh, it doesn't do your championship points any good. So you have to be able to be aggressive, clean, and, and decisive. And from what I've seen of, you know, Max, he's very, very good at that. You know, he, he does surprise other people. He just seems to have that... Uh, response you know that it's just millisecond response to the situations that's going on and um i i welcome the day the two of them will be having a consistent battle you know race after race because that's the only time we'll get to know who really should have the upper hand who really is fast enough but who really is aggressive enough and who really is very good at planning you know i think lewis hasn't he's won seven world championships won you know many many races but He's never really had to win the races. He's he's won them because they ha he's been in, in the the quickest car, um, and at the times the car wasn't the quickest; it was a quick car. So he's you know he's never really had to battle and wring its neck, or very very seldom had to battle and wring its neck to pull that win out of it. Whereas some of the ones that Max has done, he's had to battle and wring its neck to pull that win out. So getting the two together and a bit, bit more consistently will be a a massive thing to see. Yeah, and the interesting thing is we have seen Hamilton, while you're right, he's mostly had more straightforward runs. When he's really needed to at times, he has turned it on. I think in 2018 at Monza, when Vettel spun in battle with him, then he passed Raikkonen to win the race. And then at Sochi that year as well, when he dropped behind Vettel because of the uh, the pit stop timing and then repassed him. So he can nail those passes when he needs to, but he hasn't always had to. But I do wonder whether because of what you were talking about there with they don't necessarily entirely know how, how they're going to treat each other in battle, if, and that's a big if, they have similar performance cars, Mark, is there going to be an irresistible force, immovable object moment at some point? Yeah, but we don't know when that is, and it's not necessarily going to be in this season. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the nature of, of time and mortality means that eventually the, the pretender defeats the king, doesn't he? It, that, it always happens. History tells you that that always happens, but it doesn't, happen, it doesn't have to happen immediately. You know, it could happen two or three years down the line. So, you know, it's, um, it is that, it, that battle has been sort of set waiting to happen for quite a long time now. Um, and actually my concern at the moment would be that the Red Bull is going to be dominant and then we, we, won't, we won't get to see it for that reason, <laughs> just based on uh, how the two cars looked in testing. But let's assume that Merck can get to the bottom of uh, why the car was, was so difficult there and, and um, we, we can hopefully, um, hopefully that puts it out on par with the Red Bull rather than two or three tenths clear of it as it has been, you know, um, more recently. Yeah, that would be an unfortunate twist, wouldn't it? Although, if a team's going to be dominant, it would be a bit of a different story if it's Red Bull. But it would be it'd be just typical, wouldn't it, if the Red Bull was suddenly uh, suddenly further ahead? But these are great these battles because they're I call them generational battles. And 
so often in history we've actually missed out on them. There have been some great ones, but I'm thinking Clark and Moss and Senna and Schumacher. We didn't quite, we just didn't get them as we as we should have done, even though there were kind of certainly in the case of Senna and Schumacher, there was there were some hints of it. But finally, we've got two great drivers at opposite ends of their career in Hamilton and Verstappen. That that's a rare chance, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. And um, as you say, we missed a few. Um, we missed, uh, you know, Clark to Stewart, and then we missed probably Stewart to Louder. Um, we, we we did see the the, the Prost Senna changeover quite um, for quite a, a few seasons. That was that was always good. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it it is it, it's you want it to happen before before the older guy sort of loses his edge, um, and you want the younger guy to be in a comparable car. Um, so yeah, I mean, Lewis is still. We saw, yeah, he was in the fastest car last year, but we did see quite a few wonderful performances from him. I mean, when he set that pole position in the, in the wet in um, the Styrian Grand Prix, that was a stunning demonstration of, of just raw speed and car control and, you know, just beautiful driving. So he's, it's still very much there. He still he still has those raw, uh, the, 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 the core things that make one guy... You know, just that little bit better than the than the others, um, and Max is of that caliber too. So we need we we just need to see them in level playing fields, and I'm sure it will play out. It won't all be one way. I'm sure it'll be it'll be one of them one weekend, one of them another weekend, and for different reasons and different circumstances, will enable one of them to shine more than the other. Um, but it, it 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 all does rest on. <laughs> on that big if if the two cars are comparable. I think the great thing as well is with Hamilton, people have suggested he may not respond well to the challenge, but I think he will. He's often said that if it's close at the front, that's, that's what he wants. And he, he even said during testing that if it's close and Red Bull's strong, then actually that's going to make it more interesting, even for him. Sure, he doesn't want a car that's half a second a lap slower, but I'm sure he'd relish the chance to have a, a similar kind of car performance level to, to to what Verstappen benefits from. But Scott Mitchell, you've been waiting patiently on the sidelines. When it comes to Verstappen, you have talked about the, the concerns about his mindset and whether when he knows there's something there for the taking rather than kind of having to snipe for the victory and take opportunities when they were there, that he sometimes makes a few little little mistakes. Do you think he's got anything to prove in terms of being able to string together that championship season uh i think i think what he's got to prove is that that impulsive streak can be kept in check when the circumstances are different because he 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 does say that he does say that just when that mentality is different when you're sort of sniping for the odd victory then you do just end up taking more risks and i think it is time for him to prove that his destructive tendencies are completely behind him i mean i feel like his career with all of the highs they, they almost go hand in hand with lows, the glories and the flare, and the flare ups. Even right back to karting, when he was at World and European Championship level, Verstappen lost titles with misjudgments in battle and controversial incidents and penalties. He, he did become uh, a, a champion at, in in pretty much everything he did in karting, so he proved he could still do it. But with those moments where he could string everything together and be untouchable, also came controversies. And then in European Formula Three. He didn't win the title as a rookie despite being explosively good. And at the end of the year, I don't know if you remember, Macau Grand Prix qualifying race, he crashed out a second. Um, 
And obviously, you know, Mark was talking about it. He's had his moments in F1 as well. 2018 is the big example, those early run of, of, of errors. And then all, crucially as well, that sort of it's not my fault mentality that he had afterwards where he almost didn't want to move on from it and it held him back. But Verstappen has slowly but surely been rounding off all of these edges and there are very, very few left. Last year, I think Turkey was the only example. Um, last year, I think Turkey was the only example him not playing the percentages and taking that needless risk behind Sergio Perez when he was chasing the win in a race where Mercedes looked like it was out of the picture or at least struggling. And, but he felt that was just a, well, I might as well go for it moment in a randomly chaotic race. He says he'd act differently in different circumstances. It'd be amazing if we got a repeat of the Turkish Grand Prix this year in the middle of a title fight. That'd be, that'd be incredible. But I think the main thing is to show that the, the, the calculated patient Verstappen that we saw a lot of last year emerges in a title fight, especially when his back's up against the wall or he's losing points or he's wheel to wheel with Hamilton. So we haven't seen that yet. So we can't say with 100% certainty that he can do it, but all the signs point to him evolving into a driver that he's going to do it sooner rather than later, maybe as soon as 2021. Well, that covers the driver's side, but Gary, now you've had some time to, to reflect on, on testing uh, it's a week ago now, so our impressions haven't changed a great deal. But what do you think of the chances of that Red Bull pace being real relative to Mercedes and this package being as as good as it looks? Well, I'm pretty sure the Red Bull pace was real, um, you know, relative to itself, I suppose you might call it. The car did look pretty good after the first half day. They seemed to get on top of the problems that, you know, that first half day, Max made a few mistakes here and there, went off the track a few times. But um, they seemed to get on top of that pretty quickly. And then both Sergio and him were, you know, were able to drive the car very well. Obviously, Max got a lot more experience in the car. You don't know what either sort of program is uh, as far as, you know, engine modes and fuel loads and all that sort of stuff. And Max ended up faster. But I think as a car, it's it was, you know, good on the track. It looked good on the track. It looked as though it had grip. Uh, it was always pretty good still in the last section of the track, which shows that it's looking after its tyres reasonably well. So, at the end of the day, I think they've got you know, themselves a good package. And the big question really is, can Mercedes put the package together to to be on their tail or be in front of them? Um, and, you know, I went through all the fuel loads that I thought that the teams, uh, or that I calculated the teams used last year in pre-season testing. And... Um, the sort of difference really between Mercedes and, and Red Bull is, is only like 10 kilograms of fuel difference. I've I've rounded them up to be a bit closer than what I calculated for last year because there's going to be less of an, ops, an offset to do that. You know, it's, it's, it's less worse, I suppose you might call it. Um, and we've, I've also rounded it up to the C4 tyre, which again, you know, it's a, a very difficult thing. The C5 tyre is probably just a little bit too soft. Bahrain and basically some cars that last a lap and some cars that won't so at the end of the day I think you know the C4 is probably as, as soft as you want to go there uh, and, and then you have a good chance of getting 95% of the lap before you overheat the tyres but in general it still showed that you know Mercedes were were behind Red Bull so not by as much as the time showed but you know there's still that bit of uh, that bit of time in there they're going to have to find now They've always been very good at finding that. Whenever they've been boxed into a corner, they've always been very good at finding the solution uh, very quickly. I, I don't really see see any reason why that shouldn't that trend shouldn't continue. 
you know, we've seen Red Bull through the season always been able to develop their car, and they 99% of the time they end up the season uh, with a better package than they started the season. Um, but Mercedes were always able to get on top of the car to begin with, and you know, and get that that championship battle um, in their hands basically before the first four races are over. So I don't really see why that won't happen. But I'm just I just think the Red Bull package is better than the Red Bull package starts the season normally. So it's not going to all down to Mercedes um, because of the competitions there between the two. Then the whole dynamic changes. It's going to be something that changes the whole pressure on everything. You know. If you've got a car that you know is two, three, four, five tenths quicker than, the, than your, your main opposition, going out to qualify, you don't have to just take risk everywhere. Um, whereas if you know you might just be within a tenth of a second, you have got to, you know, you can't afford one corner not to exploit its maximum. Um, so that, that changes the whole dynamic, the whole pressure. And, you know, half a kilogram of fuel in the tank will be something that will be significant enough to change it around. So all I'm hoping is that the two teams, uh, and that obviously we're relating here to Hamilton and, and Verstappen, and the two drivers are, are right up there. And uh, it's it's a ding-dong battle from, from the first race. So I don't think Red Bull would have ever started the season as strong as they look at the moment. Um, and I don't think Mercedes have had to scratch their head just as much as they have to do at the moment before this first race. So... It'll be very interesting to see who does get on top of it. You know, maybe maybe Mercedes has just been sandbagging. They've got a hundred kilograms of fuel in the car all the time. Who knows? But I I don't think so. So really, we won't know. Saturday afternoon in Bahrain is is going to be a big day, a big day for a lot of people. Um, I'm really quite excited about seeing what seeing what happens there. And Scott, Mercedes have said a little bit more about their situation since our last podcast. So what's what's the latest that they're saying? That they're they're still behind. <laughs> I still don't know exactly what they need to do to to change that. Um, it, it's a situation that I'm sure with every passing day they'll be sifting through more and more gigabytes of of data from from the test and getting an idea of it. But I guess it was a sort of two part issue for them because with the changes to the floor um, and the the quartet of aero changes, there could be an argument of you know if if we are struggling with rear-end instability, but we're not struggling as much as others, then you know, okay, well, everyone suffered the same problem, so it's a case of doing dealing with it as best as you can. But as James Bowles and Andrew Shoveling have pointed out um, in the aftermath of testing, that it wasn't like that with Red Bull. You know, they were watching a, a car that was planted, to use their words. Um, so I think there's a bit of head scratching still going on to fully understand it. We know that it is a, it's a long season. Um, so even if they don't have it sorted for the first race, they want to have it sorted as quickly as possible for the ones that follow. But I, I, I don't think we can overstate how much Mercedes is looking at this as going into the season opener with a deficit. They've said that even if they get their heads around it, they're not expecting to, um, they're not expecting to recover the deficit, let alone overcome it and actually be in front of Red Bull for, for Bahrain. They, they might well do. They might find something that goes, oh, well, that explains that. And actually we then had a, sequence of problems because one of the things that um shove talked about was where they were having where they think they might have been suffering from uh, the wind on on certain days is the the, the the wind was upset in the balance of the car and then the car was moving around more and then obviously because the car was sliding the tires were overheating and they were getting into this vicious cycle it might be if they find something that can prevent that maybe 
then maybe you then get compound gains in other other areas. I think it is quite complicated, and I think that is also um, shown by the fact that Mercedes didn't come out of that test and go, okay, this is the thing we need to improve. It's taken quite some time for them to fully get their heads around it. As Gary alluded to, a proper championship fight does change the pressures. This is what we've been waiting for, really, isn't it? A, a real challenge for Mercedes and some difficult decisions developmentally real part, really pile the pressure on because we have seen occasionally that team have some spectacular folds on race weekends, but normally that's just because they're always winning, that it, it sticks out like a sore thumb, doesn't it? So do you think we'll see something different from Mercedes if they are in this position? Oh, undoubtedly, any, any, any team will will behave differently when it doesn't have a car advantage. It, it's just uh, natural, you know, crucial decisions are suddenly much more important and carry a lot more weight. And so, yeah, I mean, Mercedes has, you know, could, for most of the last three years, Mercedes could have a bad weekend and, and only win by a lesser amount. And it was the, but the, the fact of the win wouldn't, wouldn't be in doubt. So, I mean, actually, Bahrain is one of their weaker tracks. When you, when you look at the, the margin by which they normally dominate by, it, it's normally quite a, quite a bit less at Bahrain than the, the, the global average through the season. It's just something about the track which doesn't suit the car's DNA. It's maybe to do with how demanding of the rear end it is. It's, it's maybe something to do with that. But yeah, it, 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 will, it will change the dynamic. And when you think of Red Bull, what, what, are, they, what are they like in their operations? They're, they're very sharp and aggressive and slick. Um, they do the quickest pit stops. They quite often do a counter strategy that works. That they they'll they're the masters of the double shuffle at the pit stops. But they're you know in that situation where they're the chasers, so they can afford to be aggressive. So you might see them um, suddenly look a bit less assured than they have looked when they were the chasers. So yeah, there's all sorts of ways they can go. And the extra dimension in this battle is the number two drivers will play a role obviously they're not named as number two but they are the de facto number twos Valtteri Bottas at Mercedes and Sergio Perez the new one at Red Bull Gary if you were running a team which of those two would you be happiest with as the rear gunner um I think if I had to pick one of them and it's he needs to prove himself yet obviously it's Sergio Sergio seems to um Always have his head up. I mean, he never gives up. Uh, when he won in, in Bahrain last year, um, you know, he was last at the end of the first lap, I think it was. So, you know, he he's, he can lie down if that's what happens to you, but he didn't, and he got on with it. Whereas you see with um, with Valtteri a bit that he's, he's really good at the beginning of the season, but he seems to get tired very quick because he's, sort of, see, he's always dropped off, you know. Um, and he needs a good wake-up call now and again during the season to get him back there. But he, he never seems to be in the same in the race. If he's if he's battling with somebody to overtake them, it very seldom happens. You know, he very seldom actually does it unless he's on a different tyre strategy or something. But he'll usually battle for two or three laps, and then you'll see the gap just getting bigger, and, and it won't really happen. So maybe I'm just taking a bit too much of a global view of it, but I think Sergio, if he can come to terms with the Red Bull, which he looks to be reasonably content with, I think I'd rather have him as a rear gunner um, because I believe that he will battle to the bitter end. And and I think if Valtteri isn't winning, he he's not a good loser. You know, he's not a good... He's finished second on quite a few occasions, but he's not a good driver to finish second. You know, he just doesn't like that part of it. He's, he's been beaten. Whereas I think Sergio will be very happy as long as he can nab 
a good amount of uh, podium positions. So he'll always be fighting for sure. And I think the battle between between Sergio and Valtteri will be very interesting. A bit like Max and Lewis, to be honest, because I, I would have said they're both you know of a very similar level in my book. You know, they're they're not quite top notch, well, like Lewis or or, or, or Verstappen, but they're pretty close. So it's another another level of battle that's going to niggle in there, and you know they'll have their day for sure. But uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be, that's just going to be as interesting as the other two. Yeah, and Perez has said he needs a few more race, a few race weekends in the car to get one hundred percent at one with it, despite making a a decent start there. Bottas has talked about having a happy mind and being in the right place mentally, which which is fine, but that's not going to make him any better at tire management or the the improvisational things that he struggles to compared to Lewis, the toughest of all barometers. But Mark, how how influential do you think those support drivers can be in terms of this hypothetical and hopeful title fight? Oh, massively. I mean, if it's if it's a, a close title fight, it, it, it's going to be crucial, um, and they've each got to be in the they've each got to be in the the position where whereby they can put strategic pressure on on the the leader, um, so that there's not a space for the for them to drop into. You know, when 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 you're in, in battle, which is exactly the problem that they had with Albon and Gasly, there were there were no there there couldn't be an adequate support to to Verstappen. Because um, the, the Mercedes drivers always had gaps to drop into, so they could play around with the strategy if they were if they needed to. Um, they've got to be locked in position to to not do that, and that's going to be that's what the team is going to be looking at for Perez to to be doing for for Bottas to be doing from their own perspective. Obviously, they're not going in there wanting to be supports. They they they're going to be wanting to perform for the for their own um, competitive uh, reasons. So. Um, yeah, I think, I think they'll. They, as Gary said, they're at a very similar level. They've got different strengths and weaknesses. I think probably Valtteri is a better qualifier. He's probably quicker over a lap, not by much. Um, Perez is probably a bit more, um, a bit, bit less up and down, say, and very good with the tires. Probably better than Valtteri with the tires. So yeah, it depends what the circumstances of a particular weekend, a particular race um, demand of the driver, which, which of those two probably come out on top. All this, again, is, is, is assuming that the cars are more or less the same. Now, there's also the Honda engine question. Scott, on our last episode with Karin Chandok, we talked a little bit about the Honda improvements. You can look back in our feed and, and listen to that. But since then, you have found out rather a lot, actually, about the, uh, about the Honda progress. And it, it's quite encouraging, isn't it? It is, yeah. I'm terrified for when Honda leaves Formula One because then my um, contribution to these podcasts and our output is going to plummet by about ninety percent, I fear. Uh, but it's it's very interesting. We we knew that we knew that they'd obviously uh, put this massive effort in for this what they were calling an all new engine for 2021, um, and it was otherwise at other times it was characterised as bringing forward the 2022 engine. But they went into testing, uh, fearing that there might be some kind of unexpected on-track problem because obviously when you change a lot and you introduce a lot that's new you introduce the possibility of something going wrong they actually had fewer issues in testing than they thought they'd have um i've spoken to toyoharu tanabe the honda f1 technical director he's very happy says that honda have had their best their best pre-season just like just like ripple have they've um they've met their they've met their power targets they were they, they had a rough idea of where they think mercedes uh, output was last year and they've, um, they've they've exceeded that so that's the first box ticks for them obviously now it comes down to how much progress Mercedes has made and if 
because obviously if they move the goalposts again in a way that they did last year, then it doesn't really matter what Honda's done because Mercedes will still be in front. But the first thing you need to do is, as Honda is get ahead of where Mercedes were last year and, and they believe they've done that. How they've done that, um, obviously they, their, their, their secrets are, are, are theirs to know and, and keep. What, what, I, what I do know is that when we saw the pictures of the car, we could see that it was a bit more aggressively shaped at uh, the rear and it did, did look like everything was a bit tighter. But when you only see renders, you can't know that for certain. You don't know if you're seeing a trick of the light or logos or stickers, whatever. But it is. It's, it's more aggressively packaged. Actually, it's quite interesting. Um, Tanabe just said that at Sakura, they now think that this engine is now smaller than the size zero engine in the McLaren days. Remember when that was obviously the the buzzword at, uh, at the time, the way they were describing it, and it was an absolute disaster. Um, but and that was meant to be really aggressive and their way of making gains at the time. But now this is even smaller than that. And part of the way that they've achieved that is by um, making the engine more, more compact, making fundamental components of the engine, the combustion engine, smaller. So the engine now, um, it's not quite as tall as it was before. So it's now got a lower center of gravity as well they've made some changes to some of the sort of specific designs within the the valve angle the valve angle is is different things are a little bit more sort of compact in terms of gaps between parts so they've found ways to extract well even more power it's not the same power as before they've got power boost from the combustion engine and they've managed to shrink the size which is a win-win situation because it's given red bull more space uh, so, so the way they've characterized it is almost like in 2019 and 2020, they were being given the Red Bull rear end and said and told design an engine to fit that. Whereas for this one, Honda sort of, it didn't push back, but basically Honda asked Red Bull, well, you know, what can we do? You know, if, if we want to do this, can we do this? Red Bull said, yes. Honda went away and did some stuff and then found a way to make it smaller overall anyway. So Sounds really win-win. Um, I know that they've explored sort of further um, collaborations over, uh, back in Japan as well. There's a company that they work with out there on the uh, mass production motorcycle side. Uh, they're using uh, something from from that company in the uh, in, in the cylinder block itself uh, with the uh, I think it's the plating that, that that they're using there. And we know that Mercedes changed. Um, I think. The, the the block for Mercedes is was aluminium before I think and now now it's an alloy so there 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 are gains that all the manufacturers are looking for and Honda have basically just when they said that they were going to throw everything at this final engine they 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 really have so it it ran reliably more reliably than they thought it's hit the power targets that they thought it would thought it would hit Red Bull's described this engine as a work of art so. And we know from experience as well that McLaren made Honda ultra conservative in what we was willing to say. So my sort of additional interpretation of all of this is I think you can read into how much Honda are shouting about the engine because this is a company that they, that the last two or three years, in my experience of dealing with them, have been terrified of saying stuff in the media because they don't want to get burned by it. And now all of a sudden, they've come out swinging at the start of this year. And part of me wonders if it's because it's the last year and they just think, oh, I don't care. We can say what we want now. <laughs> but I think it's genuine. I, I'm not going to get too carried away. Three days testing is far too little running to actually be 100% sure on reliability. But I've got to say that 
the, the, the signs sound really, really encouraging. Much more encouraging than, a, encouraging than a couple of weeks ago when there were a couple of rumours doing the rounds that they were having some reliability problems behind the scenes. How convinced are you by all that, Gary? You know Honda very well. Yeah, I am convinced. I mean, obviously, as Scott says, it's their last year. So they've either got to show that um, they can do it and that the the big boss back in, in Japan sort of made the wrong decision by pulling out a little bit too early, which is, that's really the challenge of the F1 group to to do that because they can't answer that. They, can, they couldn't answer that question any better than by going in and winning a few races this year and, and, and hopefully for them the championship. And that's the objective. My biggest concern, I suppose, right at the minute would just be the reliability with these with these engines. Now, I don't expect, to be honest, very many teams or very many drivers to actually do the season 23 races with three engines um, because there are races where you can, you know, take a hit and put another engine in the car and not, you know, not suffer too much because of it. So at the end of the day, I'm sure that there will be t- – opportunities to use more engines as the season progresses but it's going to be a, a difficult thing because you're going to have to see the championship settle down before you make those decisions you're going to have to really plan for those new engines to be to be um, put in the car at circuits where you can come from the back and still score good points you know you're very very seldom you're going to come from the back and win the race it, it can happen it has happened and it will happen again but uh, at the end of the day you've got to just make sure that you're going to come from the back and basically score some good solid points enough to sort of get you out of trouble um so we just you know just have to wait and see but reliability for anybody could be a, a major concern because not only do you lose the the race that you're running in as such if you have a, a problem a failure of some sort but you also lose because you're going to start to use those engines at cir- new engines at circuits where you don't really have a chance to come back at them you're going to have to use your plan up very early so i suppose right now what we're seeing is the power level between mercedes and honda Initially, and we haven't seen that magic knob being turned yet to the to the maximum, you know, for uh, for the qualifying and the and, the, and the, the race which you have to do now. You have to run the same engine mode for qualifying and the race. We haven't seen whether what the experimental level of that will be because that's all you can do. You just look at the, the uh, duty cycle for an engine at a given track, and you calculate basically the the most power you can run for those given tracks to to get the best out of it. We haven't seen what that is yet. That needs we need to see two or three races to see where that level sort of finds its feet. Um, so that's going to be the big thing. But as I say, changing as much as Honda seem to have done right now, I would be I'd be a little worried as they were about reliability because it can it can really bite you pretty quickly. Performance wise, I think they're there, but reliability is going to be their big concern, especially with um, well, if the if the calendar is correct, it stays the same as twenty three races, isn't it? So. Um, they, they they did feel that their reliability in 2019 and, and 2020 was, was good enough. But obviously, last year we didn't see it. We didn't see evidence that they could do whatever it was, seven or eight events with the same set of components. They have actually never done this. In 2019, they were still sort of in that position where I think towards the end of the year, they were able to just mix them. They had so many components in the pool going into the final third of the year, they just kept mixing and matching. So... We, we actually have not seen this. And as Gary points out, this, we haven't seen the scale of change over the last two years either. So um, it's a big step. Uh, they had to do it, didn't they? I mean, last chance. So you got to throw everything at it. It's the right thing to do. But uh, it, any kind of attempt at innovation comes with fresh risk, doesn't it? Well, you know, what I found out with working with Honda when I did 
98 was the fact that once they actually really understood where they were and took it on board um, back in Japan, there was nobody react could react like like they did. <clears throat> you know, it was just one of those sort of situations where it's so difficult in a way to get them to understand the situation because they all the way they believe that they're they're in good shape. But it's just that getting over that hurdle to realize that actually hang on a minute or two, maybe we're not as good as we think we are. And then and then it's just it's just update after update after update back in those days. So now obviously they've had to do their 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 big job, their big research, their big development all for the beginning of the season. You can't just keep updating as the season goes by now. So you know, they've been pushed into this corner, but there's nobody to respond like like the Japanese when it comes to it. So I expect big things for them. If they do get struggle struggle with uh, reliability, it'll be because of you know something that's just slipped through. Um, but there's so much testing done on test benches now. You know, so much running behind the scenes being done um, on dinos, simulation dinos, real car dinos. You know, there's so much mileage behind the scenes that we don't see. That they, you know, they should be able to prove it all out, and uh, and even you know before the first race, I'm sure they'll have proved it all out and be happy enough to the for the par level they're going to run um, that it should get them to the checkered flag. Let's have the last word on the battle at the front from Mark Hughes. Is it just going to be one of those things as people on Twitter and in the comments section on the race keep saying that Mercedes will just be brilliant in Bahrain and we're all reading too much into testing, or do you think this is going to be a much more complicated season? Uh, the latter. I don't think there's any way that um, Mercedes could engineer a car deliberately to misbehave the way it was visually. Um, so, you know, it would be a, an extremely um, uh, subtle bit of uh, sandbagging, which, you know, just is almost an obsolete concept now. It's just something that um, fans like to believe it happens because it's got a sort of exciting subterfuge to it. But it's it, it's 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 almost an obsolete thing now that it... The teams have got so much data and to go on from each other, from GPS traces, every, every way of analysis. So, and and in Bahrain, the time was so compressed, so short um, that everybody just needed to maximise the information hole, which is why you didn't see everybody doing um, race simulations. Even there's only there's only a couple of teams that did a full race simulation. There just wasn't time to get through the whole program and have a, a proper race simulation. Um, so, no, I don't. I don't think it was um, some some form of a Mercedes not not showing the hand. I think the the genuinely uh, were struggling in testing, and it's just a question of whether they can um, find find the ghost of the machine in time for the first race. Um, I'm, I'm sure they will uh, find it eventually, but whether it'll be for the, in time for this first race or not, I don't know. And uh, we just got to hope that when both cars are running on song and cleanly and they're properly understood by both teams, that uh, the lap time's about the same. And that, that, that then, then we're really set for a, a vintage season. That's all we ask for. Very, very similar performance levels and a classic title fight. And it's something at least we can realistically hope for in these early days and it may be delivered on. Let's look down the field now. Gary, the midfield pack looks set to comprise five teams again this year, possibly even six if Alfa Romeo can latch onto the back. Got loads of experience with teams in the, in the midfield. So how do you go about unravelling McLaren, Aston Martin, Alpine, Ferrari and, and Alfa Tauri and, and pick a favourite? Um, well, I don't think you should pick a favourite. I think you should just do the sums and try and come up with the best solution that you can. Um, you know, what? my numbers show me that, uh, that McLaren 
Last year, they finished third in the championship. They weren't the third fastest car, but I think they're in good shape now. I think their car is definitely a step forward. They got the Mercedes power unit, so they're not lacking in that area anymore. So I think McLaren, Ferrari, I think, have made ground. Um, is it enough to really get them into the competition solidly? I think they, they will be now um, in that leading edge of that midfield bunch, but I don't think they'll be there as consistently as, as we'd like to see them. Alpha Tori looked good. You know, we never really saw Gasly go out to try and wring the car's neck, but, you know, he doesn't have to in a way because he's got the experience behind it. Whereas uh, the other young guy, you know, the Japanese guy, he, he he does need to. He he needed to go out and do that, and, and he did it, and he did it very consistently. Um, so I think Alpha Tori are in decent shape. And Aston Martin, they seem to be struggling the same bit with, as, as Mercedes. You know, they're... They'd never really showed their hand. They had a few reliability problems with gearbox stuff, um, as did Mercedes. And if you look at that, you know, there's four teams out there with Mercedes power units. Um, Aston Martin uses the same transmission as uh, as Mercedes, but McLaren use a different transmission, and uh, and Williams use it in their own transmission as well. So, you know, they didn't have any transmission problems, whereas the Mercedes system did. So that's another problem you got to get on top of because these gearboxes are so complicated. This, you know, sort of no torque uh, reduction sh- gear shift. You get one of those wrong, you have a big pile of bits. Yeah, you know, not in the middle of the gearbox. They're on the track because that's that's what they do. They just blow themselves to pieces. So you can't afford a gearbox problem. So I'm, I'm not sure that I see Alfa Romeo joining that bunch at the end of the day. Um, the car looked okay, and Kimi obviously can put a lap in, as will Giovinazzi, but. I'm not sure the car will never push comes to shove. I'm sure they're one of the lightest cars from testing, as they were back in uh, in, in 2020. So, you know, I think they'll have a, a bit of a shock coming whenever they're on the same fuel loads as everybody else. The one that's in there in the middle, and it's really hard to understand where it is, is, is the Alpine team with, with uh, Fernando Alonso back. Because, you know, it's, again, it's not really, it doesn't look bad. It doesn't look good. You know, it's in the middle somewhere. I don't know where it's going to be, whether it's going to end up in a real competition in that midfield bunch at the front of it or in the middle of it or at the back of it. And it's only, you know, two or three tenths of a second that'll make that difference from the front of that midfield bunch to the back of it. So I think we've got a very close competition. It's just it's just the fact that at the minute we've got two teams at the front and then we've probably got, you know, I don't know, six teams and then... A little bit of a gap again to the to the to the last two, and obviously Haas hasn't done anything to their car really, um, so they're not going to be changing much from last year. You know, they're just going to be stuck stuck in the same place, which was down the back. Um, so it, again, I think we need to see two or three races go by to see who can identify their problems and try and rectify them. Um, but it's not easy. It's not easy in, at this time now, round because when you take some of the tricks off the car, i.e., the the floor, the slats down the floor, the the diffuser strikes, shorten the diffuser strikes, the the brake ducts and stuff. There's then less less little bits and pieces to to attack and make work differently. Um, so as you take bits off the car, basically the cars you know the cars have less less tools in them to actually massage and, and get better performance out of them. So I think we just have to allow a few races to go by before we have any idea. Really, to be honest, we can all do predictions, but they're predictions with a, a huge question mark beside them. And Mark, when it comes to this group that's going to be so tightly packed, when we look at the quality of, of the drivers, 
if this was a championship fight between these, we'd be massively excited. When you've got Fernando Alonso at Alpine, Daniel Ricciardo at McLaren, Charles Leclerc at Ferrari, Sebastian Vettel at Aston Martin, Pierre Gasly at Alfa Tauri, plus the, the, the kind of nominal number two drivers, Lando Norris, Esteban Ocon, Yuki Tsunoda as well in the, in the Alfa Tauri, drivers with a lot of ability, Carlos Sainz at Ferrari, there's, there's too many to, to list. That's going to make such a difference in that group, isn't it? The drivers who are at one with the car and on their game are going to be the ones who are battling for fifth, sixth in the championship. Yeah, it's a, it's a real quality field. It's got depth throughout it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't like to say who who's going to do the best job as as a driver of, of any of them in, in among that um, midfield group um, with, with some extraordinary performance among them. So. Yeah, just like Gary says about the car, you'd just be guessing, really, because they're they're all, you know, most of them are just absolutely rock-solid, proven performers. And Scott, we've all got gradually less and less optimistic about Ferrari as the past month or so has, has gone on. We say that they really should be finishing third, and really they should. Bonotto set that as the objective, but... While they're not out of contention for it, they're not exactly the favourites based on what we've seen so far, are they? Uh, no, they're not. And I was thinking this the other day because they they said at the test that on the engine side, everything seems to match what they were expecting on the dyno. And they say that with the stuff that they've done, refining their aerodynamics and reworking the rear end with the new rear suspension, that all of that correlates as well with what they were expecting. So now at least they have a baseline for development and all of this. But if everything was correlated and this is the result, does that not simply mean that they undershot? Did they underestimate what the others would do? Did they aim too low with what they wanted to improve? Because if you take the engine side just on its own, at the end of last year, Mattia Bonotto said that if they'd been able to develop the engine through the season, which obviously they couldn't do because development was frozen, didn't he say they'd have, he felt confident they'd have ended last year with third best engine? They wouldn't have been the worst. Um, but now that seems to have translated into a an okay gain on the en- on the engine side. He says that they don't expect there to be a disadvantage anymore um, on, on on the straights. That's a combination of obviously engine and also re- reducing some of the drag. But I don't know. It just to me, it just doesn't seem like a few things don't quite join up in terms of what they were promising or aiming at the end of last year and what they seem to have now. I don't know. I might just be being cynical, but it just doesn't doesn't quite correlate. Well, Mark, you've got quite a good feel for how much Ferrari have gained and what they've done. So it just seems like they've done everything they can and it, it's not not really enough, isn't it? Yeah, I think they've just maxed out the, the, the concept as much as they can within the restrictions that have you know that they weren't expecting to be, to be facing you know a, a year ago so you know they're limited with the front end of the car because of the token spend that they wanted to do at the rear and it's 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 clearly an outdated front end concept now with that big wide nose um i think the the engine the power unit concept it took a a big big hit last year which it had been developed in a direction um, based around their interpretation of the the regulations, which the FIA said wasn't a valid interpretation, so they've had to sort of reverse all that development and go in a new direction. It's, it's clearly hit a ceiling um, lower than they were hoping for. They're talking about maybe a twenty horsepower gain, and I think they were hoping for a, a rather more than that. 
but you know, it, it's it's the combination of what they've done. It's, it sounds like they've done. It sounds like they've done quite a. They're quite happy with the job they've done at the rear end of the car and the aerodynamics, and um, which was a big weakness last year. Not only was it high drag, it was it, it was inconsistent rear grip and unstable. Um, that's that's more or less fixed by the sound of it. Um, it's less draggy. It's got a bit more power, but then so is everybody else. Um, yeah, it, it's still in that midfield group, and it's still going to be probably relying on Charles Leclerc pulling out the out sensational lap to be um, to, to be figuring at the front of that group rather than being able to do it naturally on performance. That's that's my reading of it from the little that we've seen so far. Yeah, I reckon at least five times this season we'll talk about Charles Leclerc turning in the qualifying lap of the year on on Saturday, which uh, which happened last year. But moving away from that group and just having a look at last year's Class C, Gary, you've already touched on Alpha. I think we feel that Alpha is probably the the best placed of the uh, of the cars at the back, and maybe even could break away a little bit from Class C. But Alpha, Williams, and Haas. Out of that uh, <laughs> that questionable group, who do you think is going to be the strongest? And is there any real point in Haas? Well, Haas himself has said it's it's going to be a you know a learning year for them because they they didn't have the budget really to plan a spend on the on the car for for this year, um, so they just done what they had to do to to comply with the regulations. We've seen a couple of little bits, you know, simple little bits going in the car, but their you know their big focus is for twenty twenty two, and they've got two novice drivers in the car or rookie drivers in the car, so both of them very capable. But at the end of the day, this doesn't matter how capable you are you still just need to show that you can um you know do the job every weekend so i think as a team as a driver combination they're all happy to buy into the fact that this is going to be just a survival year and um, a learning year and really focus on 2022 but you have to really try to wonder if if they can actually focus on 2022 and do a good job. It's a completely different set of regulations. For sure, the car's characteristics will be completely different. How everything operates in the car will be completely different. So, yes, it's possible. They're going to have to put a lot of research, a lot of time, a lot of development into it. But, you know, they, they work closely with Ferrari, um, as um, Aston Martin worked closely with Mercedes, um, and as uh, Alfa Tori worked closely with Red Bull. So there is room to think that the, the capabilities will be there to build a good car it was very different characteristics and what they're doing is a good idea but it, it is going to leave them right down the back um so then if you take if you take williams you know it's again it's a very difficult thing to to assess because they've publicly said their sort of car is a very peaky downforce car and that you know that's not something that you can get away with that often you know if you've got peaky downforce it means it's it's wind limited it's turbulence limited. Everything's against you if you're a team that's going to be starting in the mid-pack because you're never going to be racing on your own at the front. You know, if, if Red Bull or or Mercedes or you know whoever else is at the front had a a car and they said, "Oh, we made a choice to you know get an extra five percent of downforce, but it's a really critical downforce that will be affected by turbulence," then you'd say, "Okay, you know you're going to be if you got that and you got that five percent." Uh, during qualifying and you can use it properly and get to the front of the grid then you're looking okay you can disappear off into the distance but Williams are never going to have that opportunity so it's just a thing that I think they're digging a hole for themselves and Alfa Romeo I'm not sure they've they've just made as much ground as it looks like I don't you know their front wing philosophy and I've I've written a little bit about it 
I, I don't really understand because that's the philosophy through the whole car. Um, you know, it starts at the front of the car and it goes to the back of the car. And, and they've got a, fl- a front wing philosophy that really is the outboard end of the wing itself is, is, is pit sensitive because it's so close to the ground. I mean, the bottom of the main plane is actually more or less in line with the, the bottom of the wing end plates, which means it really is using ground effect to generate its downforce. And the thing with ground effect is it's so easy to stall that part of the wing. So then on the flaps themselves, they run the least loaded outboard end. And the reason they're running the least loaded outboard end is because the front main plane is too low to the ground. So they can't run wing angle and then generate front downforce because it's too pitch sensitive. So they got themselves in a circle, I think, of of um, in, a, in a bad circle. You know, there's no other car in the pit lane that actually has a the outboard end of the wing that low down, because you you know you end up not being able to run any any load in that wing or in that outboard part of the wing at all. So I don't see the philosophy working for them, as I don't see the the critical or the the uh, knife edge downforce on the Williams working for them. So those two are going to be, um, I think they're going to be in trouble. And, and Haas, we know, as I say. They're given the season up, really, just to to survive uh, and regroup for twenty twenty two. On on that subject, Gary, when I was reading the piece that you wrote on the website about the Williams philosophy, um, I I've, it made me think of um, it made me think of McLaren's. Uh, I think it was the twenty fifteen car because I remember they they talked at the time about changing their aero philosophy from chasing those peak downforce chasing those big figures in the wind tunnel to something that i think the way they described it was not pursuing theoretical peak downforce but achieving maximum usable downforce this was something that mclaren moved towards six years ago it does just trying to think of it in sort of like simplistic terms like it just that to me then just it just makes it seem odd that a team like williams would now go in the other direction yeah, I mean, it, it is odd. Um, maybe the fact that they, you know, they don't really have the the, the depth of research or the the philosophy right to to actually analyze something correctly. I mean, it, I'll take a little example here of how we used to go about it, and it's it's changed a lot. But this is a typical example. You know, you take a, you've got a turning vein of some sort sticking out of a barge board or front wing end plate curvature or whatever front wing flap angle, and you you know you'd increase those. The curvature, let's say, or the angle of attack of these components, and you you know move it by one degree, and you get a plus on the downforce level. You move it by another degree, and you get a plus. You move it by another degree, and you get a massive loss. If you want to run that when that component one degree less, whenever you know there's only one degree of angle change of the airflow to it that makes it fall over, then you're you're too critical because that's what's going to happen in turbulence or in crosswind. So you have to back it off till you get to that nice middle state you know that that nice sort of compromise that says okay my working window now is three degrees or five degrees angle of attack because the you know the the the, the yaw of the car the car is not straight ahead the car is always at an angle going through a corner you know we can all create downforce going down the straight it doesn't really matter though all you want to do is get rid of drag going down the straight but in the middle of a corner with the car yawed rolled and steering lock on it that's whenever you want to have consistent grip and that's the sort of environment you have to spend your time trying to make the car work in um and it's 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 going to be sort of so difficult to understand the car and actually adjust the car to get the best balance out of it if your aerodynamic surfaces are overstressed and potentially just falling over you know if you go back to mclaren a few well quite a few years ago jensen button driving 
and I remember many times I was working with the BBC then, and you know, they, they would they'd be complaining on the radio about a little bit of understeer. They'd come in and they'd put a degree of front wing on it, and they'd go out and they'd have no front grip whatsoever. And that was just because they, they, you know, they were running a, a, lesser, a lesser element front wing. The front wing was stalling. Um, that one degree of angle or whatever to fix that little bit of understeer would be such that it would just stall the wing more. So you get have no front grip. And that's the sort of thing you've got to really understand and stay away from because, you know, when those things happen, they don't they don't tell you they're happening. They just happen. And they just confuse the driver's head. You know, whenever we had our Jordan in 98 that was at the beginning of the season, you could do a quick lap in it, but the driver hated it. And it was just one of those cars where the car had a bit of understeer and the more steering lock you put on it, the more understeer you had. So you never really... For the driver, it didn't make sense. That's that's one of the biggest problems. And peaky uh, peaky downforce or a characteristic within the car that's not correct just confuses the driver's head. You know, because these things these things pop up, problems pop up in the handling from corner to corner. The car's a different car. You've just got to try and get a stable error platform. It's the same in fast, medium, and slow corners, and that's your baseline to work from. Then, and then from there on in, you can let the driver exploit his talent and bring you the, the tenth of a second that the driver will be able to bring you if he has trust in the thing that he's actually driving. And also in the realm of Williams, one of the massive subplots this year is going to be the driver market. George Russell has a key part in that, given his Mercedes affiliation. Lewis Hamilton's on a one-year contract. Valtteri Bottas isn't confirmed for next year. Mark, how important do you think George Russell's performances towards the back are going to be in that? And how do you see that whole thing playing out? Because it's also another kind of chaos factor in in the Mercedes in the in the world of Mercedes isn't it just a little bit of uncertainty about what's going on there yeah actually i think of the if you think of the 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 three contestants for a mercedes drive next year the three obvious ones lewis hamilton valtteri bottas george russell i think the one with the greatest certainty of being in there is george russell i, I think he's he's as good as in there um and that he he would really need to drop off his performance that he's shown so far massively for from for any question marks to to surround him from going in there. Um, I think the only question mark is who his teammate would be. So it's just whether Lewis decides he wants to continue or not. And if he does, um, then I, I could see it. It's a, a, a Lewis a George Russell partnership. And if Lewis does re- decide to retire, then I guess they they extend Valtteri for another year. Um, I. I honestly don't think that um, George Russell has got much to worry about. And I mean, Toto Wolff's almost said as much at the, at the launch. He said, you know, he's, he's part. He's definitely part of our future. He's definitely going to be driving for the team at some stage. He just needs to be patient. For for now, we're concentrating on Lewis and Valtteri. But for now, he meant, he meant 2021. But of course, Scott, that doesn't mean George Russell can afford to be complacent. But he's also probably the least likely person to be complacent with the way he does things. Yeah, he doesn't really buy into that, does he? I know he's he got a bit of um, he got a bit of attention for one answer he gave uh, about his about his future. He sort of quite nonchalantly he, he was working his way through one of those slightly tricky questions. He was, you know, what George is like. Every now and again, he just likes to slip a a little bit more in into the answer. And he said that at some point he's got an interesting decision to make about his future this year. That was uh, a question asked in the context of obviously how much Williams is aiming to improve and the excitement around this project. I think that's 
presi- that that's that's only going to be the case if it's not a Mercedes, isn't it? If if it's if he's not got a Mercedes drive for twenty twenty two, then he's got an interesting decision to make because it, I presume his sort of movement in the midfield is going to be limited. And actually, Williams probably isn't a bad place for him to be because the the natural progression progression of the team will almost be like stepping up into a more upper midfield car, but he he quite rightly makes the point of he's a Williams driver and his focus is on doing the best job at Williams. Having that philosophy last year is what got him that opportunity in Bahrain, the Sakir Grand Prix, to replace Lewis Hamilton. Um, he's very he's very process driven. Is is George and I? I think he's I think he could have a really interesting season. Um, I've, I really hope that there are some non-windy races this year so that that car can actually operate in neutral conditions and it would just be good because there have been a couple of jokes about George sort of being Mr Saturday and he's great in qualifying and can't do it in the race I sort of took the view that actually that was him outperforming where the car should really be by rights and then regressing to the mean on a Sunday um, it would be lovely to just see him have a bit more of an impact get, get a few points finishes and then and then who knows? But it, what's interesting to me is that if Merck don't promote him, I wonder what sort of contractual consequences there will be in terms of, you know, who he can choose. And let's say Red Bull, for example, Perez doesn't work out. Sonoda needs another year at Alpha Tauri. Pierre Gasly's not going to get back to that senior team anytime soon, is he? Wouldn't you, if you were Red Bull, just go for it? <laughs> just try you'd be blunt in Mercedes for the next few years because you'd be taking away their next best option. So I think George is going to have plenty. I mean, he's going to have plenty of suitors. Um, Mercedes is obviously the big one for him, but whether it's uh, McLaren or Aston Martin or other teams in the midfield, he'll, he'll have plenty of people coming after him. And the final point about this season is that there's going to be really important work going on out of sight, away from the racetrack at the factories, working on the 2022 cars. A massive rule change for next season and a rule change that's going to lay the foundations for the competitive order for the for the coming year. So that's massively significant. So Mark, how much effort a team's going to be putting into that given that there are the limitations of the cost cap and the aerodynamic testing restrictions that mean you can't just brute force develop both? And how's that going to impact what we see on track this season, particularly when it comes to a possible development war between Red Bull and Mercedes? Oh, enormous. I mean, I think it's going to be more rearward loaded, if you like, than um, any any recent season. It's 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 going to be the main priority. I mean, this yeah, you, you want you want this season to go as well as it possibly can, but it's it's you know your your, your future is um, this next formula, and to hit the ground running with that's going to be enormously important, and it's. Um, Great challenges, although the the cars are aerodynamically, uh, or the, the regulations have been framed to make them um, more less more prescriptive, let's say, um, with less variation possible. Um, there's some big challenges there, by all accounts, in in, in trying to get the front end to to work, because um, that that seems to be the, when you when you the aerodynamics initial look at the these regulations, that's that's being what they're thinking how are we going to get some front load onto the car with these regs so you know it doesn't doesn't really matter how much um you know that you can get from the the diffusers and stuff like 
from the, the side pod diffusers, which is where, where, where these um, new cars are going to be configured, if you can't get some load onto the front to you know to get some initial speed in, into the turn, so yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see who who gets who gets there first and who gets there cleverest and how you know. There's no reason why why the the competitive order we see at the minute should should be exactly the same. I I think you'll still have probably the the same sort of teams toward the front, but I I. I I think it'll not bear um, a close relationship to what we're seeing at the moment. Let's give the final word on this to Gary Anderson. You've many times been in that situation where you've had to balance up the current season and the prospects for a good result with the following year. How difficult is that? And how would you be looking at it if you were in a situation, particularly of a team that could be on for a big result, but also you've you've got the push of that, plus you've also got the pull of wanting to make sure you're strong next season? Um, yes, it's it's more difficult for 2022, I think, than I've ever had it because we've been you know carrying through the trend of design. I suppose a lot more. It's the same basic fundamentals. We might have had narrower cars or grooved tires or whatever change, but it was still the same basic fundamentals from the car you're trying to do. So you'll have to be a bit more aggressive with how you move your people around. Um, we would normally start the season, you know, this point in time, just before the first race. Um, everybody was still being focused on the current car till it till you got to the first race as such, and then you just start to change over a percentage of people onto next year's project. And by mid-season, it would be, you know, probably at least fifty-fifty. Um, and then, as I say, as the season progressed, you know, by the end of the season, you would have a hundred percent working on the uh, on the new car. I'm talking about the design, research staff, and the the facilities. You know, not not the mechanics and whatever. Um, and again, you know, we take we look at things in Red Bull of what eight hundred people or something. McLaren have or Mercedes have a thousand, and um, uh, Aston Martin have five hundred. But there's still going to be, you know, a certain amount of those people that aren't involved in it. So there's there's probably varying between two hundred and five hundred people at, at these teams. You're just going to switch that percentage. You're just going to grow as the season goes past, focusing on twenty twenty two, because initially you're going to look at some preliminary designs. As Mark says, it's very prescriptive. So, you know, where you could sit down before and, and read the rule book and get your mind, get a visual picture of what your mind's telling you the rules are going to be, um, forget that now for 2022. It's not, it's that's impossible. You really do have to take it and draw it all out because it is so prescriptive. And then you find the little loopholes of where you can change a radius or curve, you know, an edge or whatever. Um, and I'm sure there'll be some grey areas come up that'll need question marks that somebody will find. But, you know, in the past, like a double diffuser, you never know what can pop up from a new, whole new set of regulations. So you're going to be looking very hard to find those as well, not only for you to use, but for to make sure that you either stop somebody else using them or you're prepared for it, you know, that uh, if it is acceptable, you have to get you have to go down that route as well. So, yeah, I think 2022 rule change is the most I've ever seen from anything. And it will be down to really who does just forget this come July, come end of June, beginning of July, I think most teams will just have to forget uh, 2021 and get on with 2022. But, you, you know, as you're, if you're a team that lacks performance and lacks confidence in making decisions as to the direction you should go, then that sometimes can hurt you as well because, you know, you get confidence out of making decisions and doing developments and, and moving forward. And if you don't have that going for you, 
then you sort of lack the confidence to make those decisions. And that slows down the whole process because you've got people shouting at you every day about what direction they should take with certain things and what, what sort of error maps should they be creating, you know, because it's all going to be a bit different with this much, much more ground effect car. As Mark says, not getting the, the front end loading. I mean, that's the way to control the downforce of a car. If you can't get the balance, then, you know, you can't get the balance. So you're going to have the weakest, the weakest end of the car and then the rest of the car will have to go around that weakest end. So, because you can't just have the, the rear end of the car producing massive loads of downforce, the front end of the car producing nothing, because you, know, you won't be able to drive it. So it's, uh, it's going to be a big, a big soul-searcher for many, many teams, and I think there's going to be things popping up in the regulations, as you say. They need, they need the question mark on the side of them, whether, it's, uh, whether you can do it or not, because they've tried to really eliminate any potential for that you know, that loophole, as I say, like a double diffuser, but it's, it is so prescriptive in the way it's all laid out. I would actually hate to be trying to design a car for 2022 because it's not, it's not a creative package. It's uh, it's a bit like buying a, a flat pack kit and putting it together. You know, that's what you're going to get. And I don't, I'm not sure I like it, but let's see what teams can come up with. Maybe there will be some differences, but from the bit of regulation reading I've done, it doesn't jump out to me as being a, a creative, um, a creative package for the new cars. Well, that will be a fascinating subplot with lots of talk about 2022 this year. But fortunately, despite the carryover cars and the feel that it's last season part two, there's some great new storylines brewing for the coming season. So lots to look forward to. You'll be able to read all about it on therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. And already there's loads there to read from Scott, Mark, Gary and myself and the rest of the team. Do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so and leave us a review if you enjoy it. And also check out our sister podcast, Bring Back V10s. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Just search for The Race. And of course, there's going to be loads to watch, read and listen to from us during the 2021 season. So please do join us on the Race F1 podcast through what we hope will be a very exciting year.